This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, NTSB accident rates go up, or do they? Familiar yellow reading material at FBOs goes away. And aircraft delivery numbers are mostly positive. And more positive news for Bonanza owners out of a potentially bad situation. Plus, we're going to take a few minutes to say what we're all thankful for this year. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk, Paul? I am ready. How about you, David? I'm ready, too. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, contact. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. We're going to introduce Paul Harrop on Hangar Talk. He's our guest co-host this week. And Paul, little known trivia, go ahead with that. <laughs> I've been on every episode of Hangar Talk. It's just pre-recorded. I'm the voice of the announcer there in the open, so it's pretty cool to be here in person with you, David. We're glad to have you here. And before we move too far down the road, Paul, we're going to talk a little bit about our special guest this week, and it's going to be Rune Duke, AOPA airspace guru, outer space airspace guru, and acronym and abbreviation guru, Rune Duke. There are not many things he doesn't know a lot about. The guy is sharp as a tack. I understand you're going to try to stump him. And I did, but you'll have to wait till the very end of the guest segment to figure out what we did. All right. I'm looking forward. That's a good tease. I'm listening. All right. Well, Paul, we're glad you're with us today. Let's go ahead and get started. One of the first things we're going to talk about today are the NTSB accident rate numbers, which are a little ambiguous here. We need to explain that to our podcast listeners. Yeah, it kind of looks like funny math this year. The headlines, of course, read that the accident rate has gone up, but that's really kind of uh, not exactly as it seems. There's some nuance that gets lost there. Right, right. Well, now sticking to the numbers, let's look at this first of all. So 2018 civil aviation accidents did increase from 1,316 to 1,347 accidents and fatalities did go up from 346 to 393 for the calendar year, but the difference is in semantics of the reporting. Yeah, the quote there is general aviation as defined by the NTSB, which for years has included all of general aviation, Part 91 and Part 135 operators. This year they decided to take that completely out of the equation. 
So that it makes, and that's a lot of difference there. If you look in just at the numbers, part 135, that's 3.8 million hours flown. So that's significant. And without that additional number factored in there, of course it's going to sound like it goes up. And then the other factor, David, 2017 is one of the most safe years we've had in decades. So, of course, you're going to see an uptick coming from this super safe year. Of course, we all want that accident rate to be zero. That's what we work for through education. That's what the Air Safety Institute works towards. That's the goal, but we're still getting there. True, true. And let's think about one other thing that I was going to bring up. You know, you're a private pilot and I'm a private pilot. Now, we have a lot more tools at our disposal than we used to have even five short years ago. We've got apps like Garmin and ForeFlight that help us with situational awareness, with terrain, things that have been a common factor in a lot of GA accidents. Yeah, the toolbox that we have is certainly increasing. Our awareness and fluency with these tools is increasing. I think as that technology continues to roll out and permeate general aviation culture, it will only make things safer. I will keep an eye on that, but let's keep an eye on something else that is going to be vanishing from other people's uh, FBOs and, and coffee tables from around the country, and that is? Trade a plane, the familiar yellow publication it's still going to be a publication, but online only. How? What are we going to read in the FBO now? Well, I don't know. And I used to really thumb through that yellow paper and and really have visions of me buying this kind of Cessna or that kind of RV and or Mooney or whatever. And it just was a lot of fun, you know? It's a dream sheet. I mean, you look at it, and, and I think Tom Haynes made the best point about it. Yeah, you're making a lot of your purchase research decisions on the Internet these days, but what's good for that? What that was good for was just thumbing through and seeing, hey, well, maybe I should consider this type of airplane. Instead of searching for a particular model or make, it kind of opened your eyes to a whole bunch of different things. Like you would stumble across American champions as you're on your way to Bonanzas, you know. And you'd forget about something and you would be reminded by what was in there. So we're going to have to uh, send out some more copies of Pilot Magazine for people to, to fill that void in oh, the yeah, FBOA lobbies. Yeah. We can do that. And so and we feel bad for the folks at Trader Plan because they're, they're our friends also. We see them at a lot of fly-ins and air shows and whatnot. And, and they were such a huge presence in the country. And plus, it was a family-run organization. Yeah, and it shows the power of the Internet. What they told us that the decision was behind this is people were frequently posting an airplane on there, say, on a Friday. And they publish, you know, about every 10 days or so, the print one. Well, Monday morning, he'd have a voicemail from the person saying, hey, don't put it in print. The airplane's already sold based on the Internet ad. So it really is indicative of the larger print world, I think. Print's largely downsizing. It's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate for the old school of doing things. But, hey, we've got new things like podcasts filling the void. That's right. And you're listening to the Hangar Talk podcast, and we're glad y'all are here. Well, let's move on from that to some more numbers here. Let's talk about the GAMMA numbers, the General Aviation Manufacturers Association Delivery Report, the third quarter report. You know, that's a, it's a mixed bag, but we're looking at some, some genuine growth in piston aircraft and business jet deliveries, which we saw in the quarter two also, but we're still seeing a continued decline in the helicopters and other aspects of the industry. I see good news out of that third quarter report. I see that piston airplanes are on an uptrend, and that makes me all kinds of happy, David. It does, it does. You know, that means that uh, people are ordering airplanes for their flight schools or for a flight operations department. And I think it's indicative of there is a, a growth happening in GA. We've talked about, oh, could it be declining? Well, these numbers show that to be 
demonstrably false. They That's are true. they are up uh, quite a bit, and and it's surprising. I was I was trying to do a deep dive into these numbers, yeah, uh, for just some context going into a recent light sports show, the Deland Sport Aviation Expo that I covered a few weeks ago, and I wanted to take a look at the LSA sales numbers. Well, okay. LSAs have actually been selling pretty well this year. Well, they're le- they're less expensive than some of the other models that you can for consider. newer Part Twenty Three aircraft. Yeah, in in large part, but. It's really uh, encouraging. I mean, we're just thumbing through here. Icon sold uh, 14 airplanes first quarter, 14 second. Little dip, eight in the third quarter. But Do you think that they're going to hit there? I mean, they've got to hit certain numbers. They've got uh, hundreds of aircraft on back order there. That, But you are thinking that might be a cyclical kind of a thing. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what is involved in producing an aircraft. I do know they've had some production challenges. But the fact that those airplanes are coming out of the door is a, is a positive sign. Look at Piper, the M600. They sold six of those this quarter. That, that's a high-ticket item, though. That's the flagship of the it fleet. Is. It is. But, hey, a rising tide always raises all ships. For example, here's a, an order. 39 Archer 3s were sold this quarter. That's the trainer right there. So we like that. Nearly 40 trainers going surely to a flight school or university or something that uh, that is real popular with. That's all good news. It is good news. And, of course, Cessna is still really strong, as well as uh, Piper we mentioned. Now, you mentioned another one that you had your eye on, Technem. Now, that's kind of a sleeper. Well, Technem, I think, is a a really fun company to look at because they've got some beautifully Italian-designed airplanes and they're starting to stretch into markets that they haven't been in. The uh, Technam P2012 Traveler that Cape Air just put a big order in. That is a really neat airplane. I got to see it at NBAA in Las Vegas, the National Business Aviation Association show. And the technology that's in that is surely going to trickle down into the rest of the fleet. For example, each individual cylinder on their IO520 based engine. It's a special model certified just for that airplane. They can control the mixture and the timing on each cylinder Ooh. so that you can't mess it up. Like if you're that. if you're a regional pilot or a charter pilot, you can't mess this engine up. It'll take care of it. That's in that super high end right now. But with those, let's see, 43 of those sold this quarter, surely that'll help that technology permeate into the lighter GA space. Well, I think that's a good point that you bring up there. Now, we know Cirrus is still the market leader as far as GA goes and single engine, and they've also put a lot of eggs in the basket of their Vision Jet, which I have yet to fly in. (laughs) But you don't have to sell them any Vision Jets to make up for some of the deficits if you're selling a little bit, uh, a couple fewer of the SR-20s. Now, the SR-20 model Cirrus is going to um, retweak a little bit for the training market. It's soon to hit the market as well. The track trainer, TRAC, and we talked, Ian and I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and we're seeing across the board, you know, kind of a mixed bag there with the, the SR fleet. Like, look at uh, just for example, 22s. First quarter, 23, second quarter, 29, third quarter, 26. So, pretty solid. Yeah. I'd be proud of those numbers if I were Cirrus. That's not a bad sales figure. I agree. I agree. So there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Now, there's a couple of things that we're not so happy about. And if you delve into that a little bit further, you could look at the Mooney Aircraft Corporation. And sadly to say, the factory is shuttered and we don't really know what's going to happen with them. Yeah, but it's the same song, 32nd verse. I think Mooney will probably be back eventually. We don't know what uh, that'll look like. But, you know, Mooney owners, I think, are pretty enthusiastic about the brand. You used to own it. I did. You you get it. I did. I was a Mooney owner, and I'll tell you what, I love the airplane. 
I had a C model. I had an F model, too, for a short while, but I had a C model. And it was an awesome aircraft, a real go-on-places machine. And the newer models are even so much better. I mean, they're, they're a lot more sleek, a lot slicker. And I, I just enjoyed it. I liked the way it handled, uh, you know, the pushrod control of it versus, like, a cable and a Cessna. But uh, other things. And you're right. It's a very vocal group of folks. And I, I think someone will come to their rescue. There'll be a, a knight in shining armor. If for nothing else than the PMA, the Parts Manufacturing Authorization, that or authority. I don't, PMA, what does that stand for? Authority or authorization? It's one of those acronyms. You'll have to ask that to Rune Duke. <laughs> Maybe we did ask it to Rune. You'll have to stay tuned and see if we did. But there's lots of, uh, lots of demand to support that fleet because Mooney owners aren't going anywhere. No, they're not. And there are thousands of aircraft out there, and it's, it's got a pretty strong history. Well, let's move on from that to another airplane that has been in the fleet for quite a long time, the Bonanzas. Now, there's an AD that has just come out for the Bonanza single-engine airplanes, but there's some good news related to this, Paul, because it doesn't affect as many aircraft as we thought it would to begin with. Originally looking at about 4,100 Bonanzas, the FAA did some work and figured out that only 3,161 airplanes are involved in that. And if you think about that, that's a 1,000 less aircraft owners that have to go through this very expensive process of inspection. It was going to cost, they estimate, I think, uh, $500 for the inspection. That's what I was guessing at. And, you know, but that's just to look at it. Of course, your mechanic might charge more or less, but it's the right aileron flight control cable end fittings, basically the terminal attachment fittings. And you do have to replace those components, and it'll be significantly more money to replace those components. And this is pretty serious, Paul, because this came about as a result of reports of cracked and fractured right aileron flight control cable in fittings. And this is a problem that could cause loss of control. Yeah, imagine if you're flying along and suddenly lose control of one aileron. That is just a, a terribly scary situation. That's right. And so, podcast listeners, you can post your comments online and just go ahead and search AOPA.org for the Bonanza AD. You'll have the information for that. And uh, you've got some time to submit that till January the 9th. So go ahead and, uh, and make your voice known if you have an alternate me means of compliance or any other views. Uh, well, I'm sure that the Bonanza owners that now don't have to go through this process are very thankful for it. we got to say, kudos to the FAA for figuring out that the additional 1,000 airplanes don't have to go through this process. That's got to be a good relief for those owners. That's right. That's right. Well, speaking of relief, it's that time of the year. It's Thanksgiving, and we are relieved that that signifies that the end of the year is nearby. And there are a couple of things that, that we're going to be thankful for. Now, this is a segment that I started a couple of years ago with Ian, and um, we're going to tip our hat to longtime Atlanta Journal-Constitution sports columnist Furman Bisher, who used to have a yearly column around Thanksgiving where he thanked different sports teams and other folks in his life for you know in everything from large things to small things. So we're going to run through a couple of items here and just see what we're thankful for. Paul, why don't you start us out? All right. I am thankful that this year I earned a private pilot certificate. I had Yay! sort of started working on it back in 2012 and then uh, let life get in the way and finally buckled down this summer. And, you know, that's that's the big headline for me that I'm thankful for. Well, it's huge. Well, I started thinking about, okay, what, what went into that? What should I be specifically thankful for? I am thankful for the CFI that really 
made me into a pilot. I knew how to control an airplane. I understood the NAS. I knew a lot of the rules. But when I came to Keith West, my CFI, he turned me into a pilot. And I am go. thankful for the U.S. Navy for training him to fly years oh, ago. Oh, how about that? Well, that's cool. Well, hang on. Let me get – give me a chance to, to post a few. Okay. What, what are you thankful for, David? Well, it's along those same – now, bookmark what you got. Now. I got them. All right. So, now, along those same lines, um, I'm thankful for finally earning my tailwheel endorsement. And Yay! That, that was with uh, with flight instructor Dave Hirschman, who is pretty doggone hard, I might say. There's no free pass with, with Dave Hirschman. No. And I tell you what, um, he was – pretty hard on me but he was thorough and I felt like I really knew the material when I was done with it and we did what was called basically a tailwheel final exam where we landed at three different airports in one day three different kind of landing surfaces three different situations of course he saved my butt a couple of times you know during the training but I was really happy that I finally earned that tailwheel endorsement now back to you Paul I know you earned it if it was from Hirschman uh you know under, again, the overarching theme of the private pilot certificate, I am thankful to Cessna and to Yingling, who took our 172 and remanufactured that already great airplane into a solid platform. I didn't have a single mechanical problem That's cool. with my airplane the whole time. And it's just an amazing piece of technology. And uh, if you ever get a chance to fly a uh, Yingling Ascend 172, it's uh, really remarkable experience. Well, now, one thing that I saw that you did, and I was really happy to see this, is that during your training, you actually posted a little video with, with a really cool landing tip. You're, you know, during your training, this is kind of at the end of it. Yeah. Then you had a really interesting point of view. So go ahead and enlighten us with that. Okay. So my landings were kind of, yeah, they were about 90% there, but not all the way. So I couldn't get signed off to solo until I perfected it. What made it click was flying that airplane down the runway and not letting it touch down. Uh -huh. It really drilled in the sight picture because I think I was a little afraid in the flare of ballooning way up and running out of airspeed and, and banging it down. Well, once you're forced to hold it with the nose up at 65 knots, uh -huh. five, six feet AGL, you really get comfortable in that sight picture and in that uh, attitude. That was a good training uh, good training picture for a lot of us. I appreciate you doing that. You so, can find that on the AOPA Live YouTube. Oh, yeah, a good point. That's a real good point. All right, so um, another thing that I'm really thankful for, again, it's a training. We've got kind of a training theme going today. I'm thankful for getting recurrent on my seaplane rating. Oh, good for you. Yeah, so that happened around the middle of the summertime. So I got recurrent on my seaplane, which I earned that that endorsement over at uh, Kenmore Air Harbor over in Seattle when we were there a couple of years ago. In fact, you and I were covering the AOPA fly-in over there. We were over there, and we got to fly the Gooey Duck, which was That's a really right. cool composite twin modern version of like a Grumman Widgeon. Yeah, and cool you did it with, seaplane. You did it with Karen Stimwell, right? Well, we went flying with Karen Stimwell. I went I accompanied her on a couple of Kenmore missions, and we were in a, gotcha. a we were in like a beaver, like a otter. It was incredible. But I learned in a Piper Super Cub out at Kenmore Super Cub on floats, and it was fantastic. I really recommend that for a lot of pilots. You got to reflect on Kenmore really quick. If you ever have a chance to get out there, Lake Washington, uh -huh. they have their beavers running early in the morning. So you look down this dock. And they've got all these big radial beavers with the green and white Kenmore livery, and they're warming them up. And it is the most magical symphony to sit there at the dock and listen and watch Kenmore Air 
Lake Washington, Seattle. It is, and the fog comes off the lake a little bit. It's just a gorgeous, uh, a gorgeous environment to be in. I, I totally understand why people want to live out that way, especially aviators. I'm also thankful for having the ability to make a really long cross-country journey in a Piper Super Cub on amphibious floats from Minnesota basically all the way to Florida with a couple of stops along the way. Stopped over here in Frederick, Maryland, and also stopped at Tullahoma so that the boss, Mark Baker, could participate in that stall uh, demonstration that you actually helped put together. Yeah, we got to host that uh, with Mike Vivian on the AOPA, Your Freedom to Fly Facebook page. That video is still out there if you want to watch it. And, yeah, he did pretty well. I mean, I, he didn't win the shortness competition with those amphib floats on, but he, he showed land, what they can do. He oh could land goodness. pretty short. He, he said he knew he wouldn't be able to take off really short, but he knew that he could put it on the ground. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> and you, you can get anything down and stopped. <laughs> it just depends on your technique. I actually landed that aircraft on that stall runway. That was the first time I landed uh, on a short grass strip in an amphibious Piper Super Cub. It was pretty cool. I watched that landing. It wasn't bad. And Thank we, you. We were wondering when you would get here. We both left Frederick, Maryland <laughs> yeah. at about the same time. Oh I was boy. in the back seat of an A36 Bonanza and we fly to Tullahoma, and what, four and a half, hours, five hours, hours later, later, here comes the Super Cup. We had a pretty stiff headwind going across the mountains, but uh, you guys were in the Bonanza. But we had, we all had a great time, and that's the important part. For sure, for sure. Well, I am also thankful for the fine men and women of Frederick Tower. The air traffic controllers here at Frederick Municipal Airport were just great to be a resource while I was learning to fly. It was kind of a neat small world thing. Scott Swain was my controller on my first solo. Okay. He happens to be married to the head of our drone program, Cat ah, Swain. So, very cool. Yeah, I'm very thankful for all the help I got from Frederick Tower people uh, while I was learning to fly. Well, you had a lot of help from a lot of people, as we all do, Paul, when we're learning our private or attaining our instrument or whatever. So I got one more thing to be thankful for right here before we move on. I'm really thankful that I pushed my daughter, Lauren, to attend the Sugarbush Soaring Overnight Camp over in Vermont, near Burlington, Vermont. And it was an overnight for young people. They stayed there for a week in this camp, and they learned how to fly gliders. And she wasn't real crazy about going into it, but I said, hey, just do it for your old man, Lauren. Just do it for Dad. And she's a pretty good little pilot. So she did it, and when I came and picked her up, I could tell she really did enjoy it. She was giving you aeronautical advice about the local area when when you guys took back off. Tell that story. I thought that was super neat. That's true. We took off from um, the Burlington, Vermont area, from Sugarbush, basically the airport, which is on top of a mountain. And so as we were taking off and circling around, she said, hey, look over there. That's like that's Blackberry Lake. And that's where they went swimming and kayaking and canoeing, that kind of thing. And then she also pointed out a couple of other features from the air that I wouldn't have noticed because I'm not from that area. You know, I'm not familiar with it. But she had a whole week to learn about the rotors and the different wind currents and things like that. And in fact, in fact she said, Paul, she said, hey, Dad, watch out for the mountains over there. There's some rotor currents that come over that. And I was like, yes, ma'am, Lauren. We'll go the other way. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Well, that segues to another thing I'm thankful for. I'm, I'm thankful for my family. I am a third-generation pilot now. My grandfather flew B-25s and was a glider instructor at the war. My dad was a pilot. My uncle was a pilot. Now I am. And I'm thankful that my nephew, Braden is active in the Civil Air Patrol. He's a student pilot. Hopefully he will uh, solo at some point soon and become a fourth 
generation aviator in the family. So family's been real important through this whole process, and I think they either uh, encourage you or allow you to have the free time to go fly. So thankful to all the the aviator families out there. They can make or break you. Well, look, let's go ahead and segue over to our guest with Rune Duke. He's the AOPA Air, we call him the AOPA Airspace Guru. And he's going to lighten us uh, to ADSB, which is just around the corner, and a few other things. So without further ado, here's Rune. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Rune Duke, the Senior Director of Government Affairs, Airspace, and Air Traffic. Hey, thanks a lot, David. Now, Rune, you were on the Hangar Talk program a while back, and we want to recognize you as you're a multi-engine pilot, you are a former military air traffic controller, and you have your, your fingers literally on the pulse of the airspace around the United States. I try to. I try to keep up. Well, good. Well, we're glad you're here today, so we're going to talk a little bit about ADSB and the deadline for that, which is coming up as we record this, it's only about a month away, January 1st, 2020. January 2nd. January 2nd. And why is that? That is the rule. It says after January 1st. So that is January 2nd. I stand corrected. All right. So after January 1st, so on January 2nd, 2020, refresh everybody who's been hiding underneath a rock right now what ADSB stands for and what it means. Sure, and ADSB is Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast, and basically it's the transformation from our current, or what some might call legacy, radar system, which is based on the aircraft having a Mode C transponder mm -hmm. and getting interrogated by a radar system and providing that information to what's this next-gen solution, which is supported by GPS position source and having a ground-based network of FAA systems, and basically, it allows for a much faster update rate for air traffic controllers. Well, and one thing that, that has come out of this, you know, for private pilots like myself and, and pretty much like yourself, too, is that we're able to be more self-aware of traffic around us. And with that is another bonus for weather. We're looking at weather in the cockpit. A lot of, uh, there are a lot of portable devices um, that we can use. But what we're talking about now is the mandate for after January the 1st, where in your aircraft, it has to have basically an internal panel mount, not portable, some kind of a mounted ADSB device if you're flying at certain places in the United States, and that is not everywhere. And, that, and that's key, right? You have to have an installed system in the aircraft, um, but only in that airspace where it requires it. And that is 14 CFR 91225, which tells you exactly where it is required. AOPA has, you know, plain language guidance uh -huh. that certainly breaks that down into plain language, and uh, so does the FAA. And so 91225 tells you where it's required. 91227 tells you how your system must work, mm -hmm. all the different performance me measures. And, yeah, as we get closer to 2020, a lot of aircraft are equipping to meet the required airspace to be able to fly in there. But certainly others are taking advantage of the other benefits, like ADSB in, which is optional with FISB and TISB, or to get the improvements that come with um, faster uptrate rates with air traffic and broader surveillance coverage with air traffic. That's a good point. Now, you know, Rune, you're a pilot. I'm a pilot. Have you 
benefited from any of this personally in your in your training or in your travels? Yeah, well, certainly from ADSBN, that is that is a great safety mitigation for weather around you and for traffic. Personally, yeah, while flying in different areas, I would be radar contact lost or they would cancel flight following on me because I would go out of conventional radar coverage. But flying in an ADSB equipped aircraft, they can continue to see you. And then when the radar say breaks, they can continue to have ADSB traffic fly through that airspace while the solely mode C transponder equipped aircraft would be routed around that airspace. And that allows them to continue to provide radar separation versus non-radar procedural separation. So there's already, yes, visible benefits for having ADSB on the aircraft. Now, are there any disadvantages? Let's talk about this because we recently wrote a story and you were involved with some of that as to why some people might not want to have ADSB for identification purposes. Sure, and that goes to 91227. And basically, it says aircraft have to emit a flight ID and also the ICAO code. Both are unique to a specific aircraft and are identifiable to that aircraft. So you lose that anonymity that uh-huh. you would have had right. with squawking solely 1200 and flying through the NAS unless someone can see you with binoculars. And, and people are certainly concerned about, hey, private entities tracking you and also even the government tracking you. You know, rest assured right now the FAA is, is using ADSB data for air traffic purposes, the same things they use radar for. And no one's going out there and making fights or, or trying to do enforcement or violations on folks based on ADSB oh, data. Oh, no. I no they don't have no enough, time. They don't have yeah. staff to do that. I mean, let's face That's it, right. the FAA is short-staffed. We appreciate their efforts at trying to keep airspace safe and aircraft safe and the variety of other things that they do. But, I mean, there's just not enough time to track everyone down. But there's And it's certainly a legitimate concern about privacy, something that we've been you know, strongly advocating on. Same with the National Business Aviation Association. We recently had a win in our favor on anonymous mode for UAT yeah. systems. Tell us about that. Sort of walk me through that real quick. Sure. If you have a UAT ADSB system, and that I'm going to just say in layman's terms, that's less expensive. That that would be one way of putting <laughs> okay, it. Yeah, okay. and you know you can think of UAVionics, right? A lot of their yeah. solutions are UAT based. Yes. And so with a UAT based solution, you can have anonymous mode, and when you're flying around and not talking to air traffic and squawking 1200, you can go into anonymous mode, and it stops submitting a flight ID, and it randomizes your ICAO code. Thus, you become somewhat uh, anonymous, right? Unless someone with binoculars can seize you. But for 1090 aircraft, that's where we have to find a different solution. So the recent win was with anonymous mode. We had clarification from the FAA that you can be on anonymous mode while on a VFR flight plan. That was something that was ambiguous and was being interpreted differently in the field and causing some issues. Okay. And then, of course, the other big win is there's now a privacy solution for 1090. Which is above 18,000 feet to begin with, correct? That is the only difference between where you where you could fly with UIT versus 1090 okay. is above flight level 180. Okay, so you got to have aircraft that's capable of that. So we're talking about... Well, maybe- you don't have to necessarily. You, oh, gotcha. you can have aircraft that fly below. It's just only required above flight level 180. So uh, just to extrapolate that to a little bit more layman's terms, that's probably going to be an aircraft that's a little bit more capable. That might be part 135 operators, that kind of thing. It could be. Yes, yeah, certainly certainly uh, the commercial aircraft and a lot of high-end general aviation are equipping with 1090. We do see uh, right now probably over 80% of aircraft in the NAS are 1090 equipped. And that goes to 
uh, people want to fly international as well. Uh, okay, good point. And 1090 is an international Because it standard. prepares them for international flying because if you have the UAT solution, that does not. That's right. And um, 1090 has been affordable for a while. And there's, there's a lot of great solutions out there in the 1090 spectrum. And so with 1090, there's different challenges about how you can get privacy. But the FAA has been working with MBAA and ourselves and other groups to try to come up with a solution, and that is the um, Privacy ICAO Address Program, PIA. And it's now published on the FAA's website, and you can go there if you want to participate. The short term, or I should say the initial phase of the effort, is pilots can get privacy via the FAA. And then long term or phase two would be there's going to be private vendors. So think flightplan.com and those types of entities who might provide you that service. With this, you get the randomized ICAO code, but you also need to have an anonymous call sign. So that's usually called the .com call sign. Basically, it's a call sign that no one knows who you are, and you can pay for that service. Okay. Now, also, um, as an adjunct to this, recent win, as you mentioned ago, and thank you again for working behind the scenes. For folks who haven't uh, paid attention to what Rune does, he works a lot of times behind the scenes, hand-in-hand with the FAA, and really is, Rune's our eyes and ears, you know, keeping an eye on the airspace, like we said. I know you don't like me saying that, but it is true. Um, and we, we do so much for folks that, that people just don't know, so it's all happening in the background. Well, and it's it's a team, right? We have right. folks who specialize in aircraft certification, sure. airman certification, and it is it is a full-time job for a bunch of us to do the advocacy for general aviation, just like the airlines do it, just like other uh, other companies do. Right. So we have a voice at the table, and that's a key thing. I'm going to remind our listeners on the uh, Hangar Talk podcast that we have a really cool ADSB out selector tool online. And folks, I'm going to say is, is you're a little behind the curve if you're just checking up on this now. But just go to the AOPA.org website. Go ahead and plug in ADS-B out selector. And there's a really cool tool that helps you understand where you might need this. And also, let's just mention, so for instance, if I'm flying in um, typical class B area, class Charlie area, something like that, I'm going to be needing this technology. What if I'm in the middle of Wyoming and say I'm in a place where there's no rural airspace? Do I need it? So if you don't fly in the airspace required by 91225 or uh, listed in 91225, then no, you do not need to have it. There's benefits in having it. But say, for example, Wyoming, you know, they may have Class C airspace, in which case if you fly in the Class C airspace, if you fly above the Class C airspace, or if you fly above 10,000 feet, those areas would require it. So there's a lot of caveats, nuances, but think of it just like the Mode C transponder rule. Yeah, I think that's a good way of, of uh, approaching this. And also, folks who haven't flown behind ADSB, it really gives you so much more situational awareness. I absolutely see no reason to not have it. And that, that's just my own Dave T. personal view. I love flying with ADSB information, especially the weather. Uh, traffic, I still find it's hard to see. You know, I can see it on uh, on the on the scope, basically, and see it on a panel. That is, you know, looking out the window when I'm flying VFR, I, I'm still, that's my main primary goal, my primary objective. Sometimes I'll see it on my iPad and I don't see the traffic, you know, in real life. And it's interesting how much more traffic there is that you just can't spot. That's right. And we've, we've heard a lot of near misses, you know, saved by having that additional situational awareness. 
but it does not replace the requirement of looking out the window and scanning for traffic. Just like with a radar system, there are delays inherent in the system, and so the aircraft is represented where it was, not where it currently is. Depending on speed and everything else, yeah, you, you need to kind of look ahead, but it really helps tremendously with acquisition of the other aircraft. And certainly with FISB, the FAA published a recent uh, research paper talking about the benefits of FISB and your likelihood for getting into an accident is about half with FISB. Oh, well, tell us what FISB means because I'm going to remind folks that we're going to shortly have the Stump Rune abbreviation segment here on Hangar Talk. But remind folks what FISB is because not everyone has that technology. Sure, and it's another acronym, but FISB is the Flight Information Service Broadcast. And think of FISB as the option you can choose to get all things weather and aeronautical information uplinked to you. A lot of people choose to have a portable ADSB in receiver. You know, think like a Stratus, yeah. something like that. Garmin has solutions as well. There's a bunch of options out there. And the FAA uplinks NOTAMs, TFRs, including graphical TFRs, um, all types of weather information, METARs, TAFs. And, uh, you know, on an iPad or any type of system, including avionics, you can display all of the different information, including graphically. It has actually tremendously helped with TFR violations. Yeah. Because you have own ship position and you have the TFR graphically displayed in relation to your aircraft. I've flown around the Washington CIFRA area. I've flown around uh, TFRs at sporting events. and I actually do use that, look at it, and it's a, it's a great help to me. Right. And so FISB is something that we participate in. There's a group as part of RTCA that actually writes the standards of how things are uplinked, what products are uplinked. And so we have a seat at the table and we heavily participate to ensure the needs of general aviation pilots are, are met. And uh, that service provides something that's worth investing in. And we can't overstress the fact that we do have a seat at that table and there are movers and shakers there from all walks of aviation, and GA is well represented. That's right. All right, Rune, is there anything more about ADSB during our quick roundup? I'm not trying to put you on the spot because what I want listeners to jump into pretty soon is something that you just recently jumped into, which is actually space, not airspace, but commercial space. And uh, AAPA also has a seat at that table. And as outer space becomes more accessible to commercial entities, this is a very important aspect of what we're doing. Anything else on ADSB before we jump into outer space? I would say we have a lot more information on ADSB on our website, and there's also a lot of information soon to be released in mid-December oh, right. on practices, procedures for those who are not equipped. We know there will be a lot of aircraft not equipped or planning to equip sometime in 2020, which is perfectly acceptable. And the FAA has a means for you if you need to get to a shop within rural airspace or you have to get out of your home airport to get to a shop or you just need access to the airspace for one-time deal or all kinds of different scenarios, non-electrical aircraft, any number of things. We have guidance on our website starting in mid-December, and we're working with the FAA to broadcast that information and get it out there. That also can't be overstressed enough, Rune, just to let our listeners know, and this impressed me, the FAA was very accommodating to listen to what we had to say, we as general aviation pilots, 
uh, behind some of your lead. And also there was some give and take. I mean, uh, we, we tried this out. We, uh, we practiced a little bit. And there were some scenarios that really hadn't been thought of. And so I thought the big takeaway was that the FAA was willing to help out rethink some of this and then come back to the table and then again massage this idea a little bit and you're going to let us know that in sometime in mid-December there'll be further guidance on this. That's right. Uh, we have a pretty good idea of what they're going to say but until they put it in writing uh, nothing's a done deal and we've been talking about non-equipped aircraft for well over a year and actually writing policy and and trying to craft exactly what would happen January 2nd for, for quite a while now, but the FAA has been um, very collaborative with us and with others to try to understand why folks are not equipped, how to get them equipped, and then how to provide a streamlined process to get people access to rural airspace when it's legitimate. And I mean, there are a lot of legitimate reasons, and so we've been very vocal on that. All right, well, that's a good segue to lead us into the next space frontier, which is outer space. And uh, talking about, you know, we because of commercial space operations cranking up between 2015 and 2018, the launches increased by like 400%. And so with that, we need to really keep an eye on where airplanes are, stay out of each other's way, things like that. You have been involved with this outer space aspect for a little while. What is that all about? Well, commercial space is nothing new. Commercial space launches have been taking place for decades. And so um, they've been flying with us for a long period of time, not just NASA, but with private companies. But what is new is it is really taking off in terms of the frequency of launches and also the locations. There's a lot more spaceports on the uh, interior of the country. Think Denver. Yeah. Think Texas. You know, Albuquerque. The desert in the west as well. That's right. Yeah. Don't just think uh, Wallops up in Virginia or Cape Canaveral in Florida or Vandenberg or Kodiak, Alaska. There are more locations because it is big business and there is a lot of business with satellites and everything else going on. It drives a lot of uh, finances you know, around the country and it really helps, in a way, it's really helping GA too because you're looking at having a, a workforce that's aviation-based, engineering-based, and so it all kind of leads back to what we're trying to do, which is grow the pilot population in one way or another. Well, and it is. It is inspiring, and it's exciting to watch the launches. And certainly companies that bring their boosters back under their own power, I mean, that is very exciting to watch. Where it comes to our role in this and our interest in this is, of course, safety and efficiency. Right. There are, of course, flight restrictions around those launches, and that's because of what should happen. Something goes wrong, and there's debris. So yes. over the last year, there's been a lot of discussion about how we calculate those debris fields, which goes directly to how big the flight restriction needs to be and how long it needs to be active. And for us, it certainly goes to uh, the potential for much larger flight restrictions. With some of these launches, we're talking potentially shutting down general aviation airports. For how long? Or do we know? And, and a couple that's, hours and that's, or half a day or... And that's a very good question, right? Because there's the potential where it could be for a long period of time during the launch windows. So we're very sensitive to that. And we know the commercial space companies are sensitive to that. And so we've all been working together. The FAA chartered an uh, aviation rulemaking committee specifically on that question. It was called the Airspace Access Priorities Arc. And we were talking about, well, is first come, first served still the policy? How do we manage the airspace in these situations? 
And basically what we all got consensus on was we need to improve things. We need to optimize the way we do things such that it is not necessarily a question of first come, first served. And lately, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking a lot about the TFRs and the size and how to mitigate large TFRs. And uh, in the future, this will be very, very relevant because we could see them theoretically in Denver and Texas, out west, where you're potentially not just having a TFR over the ocean. You're having it over generally yeah, over the inland uh, part of the country. So, Rune, I'm going to put you on the spot because you know that's what I like to do. And have you ever been at a space launch? I have never seen a space launch. I have. I've seen several. Yeah. So in my previous lifetime, I worked at United Press International, and so I covered the space shuttle launches. Okay. Uh, several, in fact. And let me tell you, man, over at Cape Canaveral, we're just talking about Cape Kennedy, Cape Canaveral, the ground three and a half miles away where the media was set up shook. Yeah. And um, we went back out, and you were just talking about uh, debris fields. Now, this is a very serious subject. One of the things that I ended up doing on one of those assignments was to go back to the launch pad 39 and look at the debris that the space shuttle left behind when it took off. All right, now we're not talking about anything other than the normal liftoff. There were cinder block sized chunks of rock stuck in fencing about 10 feet off the ground. That it was the, the engines are so powerful that you can see stuff like this happening. So really, it's basically a controlled explosion is right, what happens. Right. And so when everything goes right, there's still the you know there still could be some debris that's normal course of the day stuff. When everything goes right, then these engines are that powerful. Right. Right. No. And I mean they shut down the water. Right. You can't have boats out there. They shut down the airspace. They shut off you know, the access to the grounds. Yep. It, it is very important that we have a safe environment. And for general aviation, that means, number one, you need to be notified so you can stay out of there when Absolutely. it's appropriate. Absolutely. With a notum. Yeah. And, and number two, you want to know the risk. Right. You want to know what's going on. And certainly we are a good user of the NAS, a responsible user, and we don't want to scrub a launch, you know, theoretically. Well, that's a good point. What if someone wanders in by accident in a GA airplane? That would not be good because you got that, a lot of money. Right. Satellites that are going up in outer space Time are also, yeah. and they're also helping us out because a lot of the satellites are GPS satellites, stuff that, that's helping us navigate, you know, that we depend on. Communicate, Communicate yeah. with telephones, mobile phones, things like that. So, yeah, we're all, we all kind of have a hand in, in this going right. And, and that's exactly it. And that's why we all are on the same page working with the FAA and collaborating with the commercial space companies is finding effective solutions, right? Just issuing a TFR, very basic information, or issuing an altitude reservation notum, is that effective for keeping pilots out and expressing the risk, expressing the need? And the NOTAMs have actually been a hot topic because we're actually getting a lot of movement on NOTAMs and improvements. Yes. Helping, you know, being driven by commercial space. And again, the recognition, we got to do better. Yeah. We need to tell pilots exactly what's going on, whether they're the airline or their dispatchers or their GA. And we've been making good progress there. Yeah, information is key on that. And you've been really helpful, um, as well as other staff at AOPA and behind the scenes have been very helpful on getting the word of NOTAMs out, streamlining that, and just really really making that more efficient of a process. Sure. And the FA right now has a, a NOTAM modernization effort. It's uh, kind of been started up by what's called the Coalition. It's an industry coalition. It was started by Airlines for America. And they brought AOPA on board, MBAA on board. And over the last year, we have NACA, we have DOD, we have all the airlines participating, as well as ALPA. And we have started to channel the FAA's really long 
standing recommendations on NOTAM improvement to action. The FAA has funded a lot of improvements, they're taking action, and they've set dates. The important thing is they have set dates for themselves. It's been a challenge to get them to go beyond, yeah, that's a really great idea, okay, what do we do with it, kind of, how do we make that happen, to them saying, we're going to make that happen by June 2020. We're going to make that that happen by January 2020. Makes sense. And we just recently, uh, in fact, just this week, we had the NOTAM Data Summit. And that was where the FAA sat down with a lot of industry users, for flight, AOPA, everybody. And we talked NOTAMs, all of the issues with NOTAMs for a solid day. And it was a long list. But the FAA was receptive, and the FAA is listening. Uh, hopefully with that, we'll get, again, meaningful change. That's important stuff, Rune. And, you know, I'm glad you're involved with that. That is a, actually a pretty good segue to our next segment. But before we leave space... Give us one or two takeaways that, as pilots that we need to be aware of with this space-based initiative and how we're going to all operate together in the near future and continue to operate together is what I should say since you mentioned we've already been doing it for decades. That's right. I would say the big changes that are coming is in the way we communicate commercial space launches. It's called Aircraft Hazard Areas, AHA, and then Transitional Hazard Areas, THA. We just recently put on our website those definitions and have started to explain that to pilots. We are now in a collaborative group with the FAA and with ALPA to actually provide formal guidance of what those terms mean. But that's, that's going to be new to pilots, is having to learn new types of airspace categories. More acronyms, Rune. That's going to help put us into the next category for our discussion today. But that's cool. The THA, the Transitional Hazard Area. That's a new term. And the aircraft hazard area, AHA. Right. And we've been very sensitive to any discussions of having to create new terms for pilots to learn when we're already, well, let's just say it, overwhelmed by terms that we have to know. And we've been very careful in the way that we go about this and communicate them so pilots may not have to know everything about that term as so much as Oh, AHA, THA, that's associated with commercial space. Yeah. And so we're going to boil it down. We're going to get it to the basics of what pilots need to know. But it is new. And that just goes to, my goodness, I mean, it's going to be hundreds of space launches in just a couple years every year. I mean, it's going to be very visible. Well, we're going to leave the space effort at that for now. And I'm also going to bookmark having you back at some time in the future to talk about eVTOL and how we might share airspace with uh, electrical vertical takeoff and landing aircraft as they mature. And we've seen a bunch that are, you know, I say going from the experimental stage to the testing stage. and, And in the near future, we do hope to see a lot more aircraft. Exactly right. And that is an area we're also very active in, and it it spans the spectrum. Airspace, air traffic, airmen, sir, aircraft, sir, everything. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some acronyms and some abbreviations. This is a pretty fun thing. I like to try to stump you. Pretty hard for me to do that. But we already learned about THA and AHA. And I'm going to ask you right off the bat, what is the ASEPS, A-S-E-P-S? Okay. Well, that's a new effort by the FAA. It's called the uh, Advanced Surveillance Enhanced Separation, correction, procedural separation. Uh-huh. And ASEPS is uh, the new effort by the FAA to look at space-based ADSB. Okay. So the big difference between space-based ADSB and what we know as ADSB is with space-based, there is no ground-based infrastructure. Gotcha. Everything is satellite. Your position source as well as relaying your position via a satellite to air traffic control. 
All right. And so ASEPS is uh, right now actually going through an operational evaluation in the Caribbean with the FAA. Uh-huh. Um, most folks have probably heard of Arion, yeah. the nat- network of satellites, yeah, and what sure. Canada is trying to do. So ASEPS is the FAA's, uh, let's just say, um, investigation of whether this makes sense in the United States okay. or, or where it might make sense. That's a good explanation. I like it. What about ATOP, A-T-O-P? ATOP. Oh, boy. And that is and that is one that is more applicable to the airlines. Okay. What is ATOP? I don't know. I don't even know. That's what I'm asking <laughs> you, man. Uh, it, ATOP is certainly an effort that is um, uh, underway with the FAA in primarily oceanic airspace, I think entirely oceanic airspace, okay. where they use ADSB for separation services. All right. So I did not stump you on that, but I almost did. Okay. All right. What about uh, ATSS? And how do you, what is the abbreviation for that? How would you say it? ATS? <laughs> I'm not too sure about ATS. Air traffic system specialists. Yeah, so those are the folks out in the field who actually do the repair work. Okay. Uh, C-H-I. Yeah, so we pronounce that CHI, but it's a computer-human interface, and it's basically think human factors. It's the relationship between the human user and the system. You know, CHI, you might think of it right now, a lot of discussion about ADSB. How do you put it on the glass for the controller, right, on their screen? Yeah. Um, between non-equipped versus equipped. Basically, you think about it from pilot's terms of, Everything that goes on your screen. So it's that okay. human factors element. I gotcha. All right. So uh, ERAM, E R A M. Uh, that's the in route automation modernization. And that's um, the brains, that's the system that powers all the in route facilities, all uh-huh. the artsies in, uh, in the United States. Uh, it replaced host, the older system. But basically, it's, it's the brains of the air traffic control software. Okay. I, the next one that's coming up, I grabbed from one of the stories we were doing, and I just like the way it sounds, MAGVAR. MAGVAR, yeah, magnetic variation. Yeah. Yes. Now, this is important for pilots. <laughs> this really is something we need to remember. From I, I guess we learned it when we were doing our primary instruction, right, magnetic that's right. variation. That's right, and it's on all the charts. Magnetic variation is important to understand the difference, the relationship between magnetic north and you know, true north uh-huh. and it, it changes var- it changes yes it that's right it changes and so every so often every couple of years the faa determines what the new magnetic variation is and they will have to update charts in those areas and sometimes runways get repainted with a different right. direction like at pdk in atlanta where i learned to fly the the runways were two and 20 for a long time and now they're three and 21 that's right. And it, it happens every so often. It's a lot of work for the FAA. It and so is. They, they tend to try to avoid updating MAGVAR too often because it does change every approach plate, every procedure. It changes all the charts, and it could theoretically change how you paint. And so it's it's a lot of money and it's a lot of work. Gotcha. Well, thanks for explaining that. What about M-O-N, MON? Uh, the MON. So that's the VOR minimum operating network. And we now have that on low altitude in route charts. And basically what the MON is, is the FAA is creating a network of VORs that can be used in the case of a situation where GPS becomes unavailable. Okay, like a backup. It is our backup for, for general aviation. And as part of that effort, the FAA is increasing the service volumes. It's, it's in the Aeronautical Information Manual. It's basically the coverage of where you have reception for a VOR. And the FAA is actually going out and expanding the service volumes for all these VORs to actually improve the coverage for general aviation, while at the same time saving money by removing those VORs that might be considered unnecessary or redundant, which in the end is something that is needed because yeah. we, we have to eventually get to that money being used for 
future programs. Oh, appropriated elsewhere. That's I got right. You. And that's how we're getting a lot of our instrument approaches, PBN approaches, things of that nature, that it is important that we keep moving forward and evolve. All right. Well, that's that's good explanation. I appreciate it. Um, something that I, I know a little bit about, but I don't fly in that area, but RVSM. Yeah. RVSM is a reduced vertical separation minimum. And it is the airspace um, above a certain altitude. It's in the high flight levels. And it basically is where we've gone from, instead of 2,000 feet vertical separation, we've gone to just 1,000 feet vertical separation. Why would we go from 2,000 to 1,000? What and, would cause that? And, and that is the avionics in the aircraft, the systems of the aircraft. They're better? Being better, uh-huh. uh, being certified, being maintained, having procedures in place for the pilots. And one of the recent changes to RVSM was actually a reduction in paperwork exercise. Um, The FAA was originally requiring and still does require certain paperwork to be completed when you want to get RVSM qualified. But if you're now ADSB out capable, the FAA has a way of monitoring you and um, it actually cuts down on the paperwork. An interesting benefit of RVSM. I like that. Tell me, and we've talked, Ian and I talked about this before in Hangar Talk. Stop buzzer. Stop buzzer. Yep. And that is an air traffic control term for when there is GPS interference occurring by the DOD, by the Department of Defense, and the air traffic controllers need that to stop. And so uh, air traffic control can say stop buzzer. And that is the magic words to tell DOD to stop all interference. And that's important for pilots to be aware of. It is in the pilot controller glossary, um, just like it's in the air traffic handbook. And it's the words that make sure air traffic control and pilots are on the same page. And this is something that is very often now. Pilots uh, may see this actually fairly common now as GPS interference. Because um, that, that interference yeah. covers long distances. I mean, it, like right. if, if something is happening in the ocean and there's equipment that's being tested, it still might affect us over you know good bit inland. That's right. And there can be safety effects. And that's why you know for flight safety... And only in the case of flight safety would you actually call stop buzzer because it has an effect on the DOD's training and it is very expensive. And so it is paramount that that is just a last line of defense of, hey, something's going on in my aircraft. It's it's having a safety of flight issue. Here's how I can communicate my concern with air traffic. I'm glad you emphasize the fact that it is kind of a last minute gesture uh, to remember that. But it's not something to use lightly because it, it – it's like the domino effect. A lot of things start rolling downhill after that. So we need to keep that in That's mind. Right. But it is a good term to, to think about. All right. Uh, something that you mentioned today, just to reiterate, and I thought you said it was PIA, PIA. Do you remember what that, what that was? Yep. PIA is the Privacy ICAO Address Program. Okay. okay. All right. Well, we went over that in uh, the earlier segment. That's interesting, though. And then you mentioned another thing I was going to come back to. And you just briefly talked about it. AA, I wrote down AAPA. Is it the Airspace Access Priority ARC? Yep, the Airspace Access Priorities ARC. It's uh, Aviation Rulemaking Committee. So thinking, think of it as this. The FAA wants industry consensus answer to a question. So the FAA asks a question, and they say, we don't want 50 different answers. We want one answer from everybody. Everyone needs to agree on something. And that's very important. It's been very important in UIS, and it's been very important in commercial space as they, you know, are more visible to commercial aircraft as well as general aviation. And so within the airspace access arc, the FAA asked, 
well, how do we prioritize? How do we figure out who has the airspace? Should we allow one entity, one company to occupy hundreds of nautical miles for hours on end? Or should we continue to allow airlines and general aviation, hundreds of companies potentially, to access, access that airspace? It's a very good question. And one of them, one of the interesting case studies was a company, a French company, launching a French satellite from an American spaceport, shutting down aircraft carrier operations in the United States, right? So there we're giving a commercial entity priority of the airspace, and they're a foreign company. So there's questions about that. How, how do we manage that also with the DOD? That makes, that makes sense, Rhea, and I'm glad you are really helping me understand this. We're going to finish with one more because we had a great segment today so far. We're going to end on, since our note today is about outer space and a lot about ADSB and space-based initiatives, let's talk about SBAS. I'm going to call it SBAS. Yeah, and, and most pilots probably just call it WAS in the United States, but it's uh -huh. the uh, satellite-based augmentation system, and it's basically where you have a GPS receiver, so think of it like a navigation device, but it's augmented. It has this augmentation capability, and here we use WAS to augment that, and it basically improves the navigation such that you can do precision-like approaches. So it impr improves do, the sensitivity main, mainly, it sounds like. That's right, yeah. It improves the capability such that you can do higher-fidelity-type navigation. I mean, I remember back when uh, portable GPSs just came out, and there was um, definitely, I think the military at that point had some X number of meters of inaccuracy built in at, at a certain point. So we couldn't really use, we didn't really have WAS. I mean, we couldn't use those for a WAS-type uh, approach. Yeah, and the FAA uh, continues to improve WAS. You know, with that capability, you can do LPV approaches, LP approaches, um, other types of capabilities. You know, trying to bring those to areas like Hawaii, further into Alaska, um, those are the goals, right? And pilots can get very affordable approaches now. We don't need to have an ILS and all the infrastructure, all oh, the good approach point. lights. Very good point. Now we can do an LPV approach to that airport and still get 200 uh, what's foot L minimums. All right, LPV, what does it mean? Uh, local localizer. Oh man, I stumped rude. At the very yeah, LPV localizer performance with vertical navigation. I think there you go. <laughs> well, no, so the point being, obviously, more accurate approaches. We're really we're saving money on a lot of this technology. That's the bottom line, and it helps us get more accurate, and it's really safer. I think in the long run. Any other acronym I didn't bring up that you want to jump on? Otherwise, we're gonna, we'll save a few for next time. <laughs> I think that's enough fun for one day. Yeah, Thanks, I think David. both of our brains are about to explode. All right, Rune Duke, thank you very much for being a really cool guest on Hangar Talk and explaining the ADSB as it affects Solid GA coming up. And also, we talked a little bit about the Space Initiative, and we had fun with the acronyms. We hope to talk to you soon again. Thanks a lot, David. So, Paul, what did you think about Rune Duke, and did you think I finally stumped him? I don't think you on did. On the abbreviations. No, no, you didn't stump Rune. You can't stump him. Rune is, 
Rune is a wealth of knowledge and uh, a guru if there ever was anyone that deserved that title. Absolutely. Well, I agree with you. I tried very hard, and we'll have him back again at some time in the future. But it's really enlightening to know that we have someone that is so competent like that on our team that really is helping uh, tons of aviators, thousands of aviators, you know, learn about ADSB and also Rune's position with space based airspace is really something he, it's very, very unique. So we're glad he's on our team. When we talk about your freedom to fly, Rune is on the front line of that. He's down there in D.C. as the face of you and me and all the other AOPA members to the regulatory bodies. He deals with the FAA on these technical matters and makes sure our voices get heard. That's true. He defends front line freedom to fly. He's out there in the trenches, folks. Well, look, that's all we have for Hangar Talk this week. Our editor is Austin Hansen, and I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangartalk on iTunes at the Sporties Takeoff app and on Spotify, Paul. And I'm Paul Harrop sitting in for Ian Twombly this week. Cool to hang with you, David. Enjoyed it, Paul. We'll talk to you guys next time. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.